All right, everyone, I just want to jump in real fast because I have a huge announcement. We will be having a part two of our large language models in production. The first conference was such a success that we had to follow it up because there were so many incredible speakers that reached out after the first one. I couldn't help myself. So it will be on June 15th and it is going to be online. So anyone from anywhere can join. But if you thought the first one was good, then boy, are you in for a treat. We have some confirmed speakers already. I'll just go through a list of them. Mate from Databricks, you know, the founder of Databricks and Spark and all that good stuff. We recently just had him on the pod. He's coming back to keynote. You've got Chip Ewan, who is an amazing person and incredible follow on social, sharing so many insights and has been dropping knowledge bombs when it comes to large language models recently. You've also got Scott McKay from mem.ai. You've got the Deep Speed team is going to be there from Microsoft. That is pretty epic. And Sahar Moore from Stripe. Another Stripe alumni is Emmanuel Amison. He's formerly of Stripe. Now he's working at one of these large language model companies that you've definitely heard of, but I don't think I can spill the beans on yet. And we've got Lance Martin, Inez from Number Station, George Matthews from Insight Partners. This is just a glimpse at the whole list. Go sign up. You've got all the details in the link in the description. Huge shout out to the sponsors Redis for showing us some love and making sure that this event happens. Argila, Anyscale, Continual, Chroma. Thank you all. And you can expect all kinds of bad musical improvisations in the breaks like I normally do it. And who knows, I may make that I Hallucinate More Than Chat GPT shirt available for sale again. Check it all out. Links in the description. We'll see you soon. Now, let's get to this panel on data and security. Diego is going to be leading us through. Nice seeing you again, Senor Diego. I'm going to bring on my man, Vin. <laughs> Dude, Vin, I got to tell everybody, about two years ago, he came up with the best quote ever which is Kubernetes is a gateway drug. And now I think we need to update that quote. And it is GPT is a gateway drug. I'm just going to leave it there for you. <laughs> I will let Diego take over because he is the moderator of this panel. Hey, everyone. So really excited about leading this panel. So like the core of it is, as is in the title, data privacy and security. So, you know, we've talked about what does it mean to data privacy and security in the context of large language models? What does it mean to trust these new AI systems? So there's a lot of questions around hallucinations. And we I talked a little bit in my, in, in my keynote around the, you know, low affordability and high affordability use cases. So Without further ado, I have some amazing panelists here who are at the at the core of this. Is it fair to call it a previous generation of ML? It feels like it makes me feel so old. I'm going to really quickly start and let them introduce themselves and ask your name. What do you do? And kind of like give me one little thing about like in the space, what you've been thinking about. So Sahil, we'll start with you since you're on my top right here. Hey, folks. Thanks for having us. So my name is Sahil. I'm an engineer at U.com which is a conversational AI search engine. And one of the topics I've been thinking about a lot is how do we best combine a lot of these advances in generative AI with advances in information retrieval? I'm Vin Vishishta, founder and CEO of V-Squared. 
been in technology for over 25 years, uh, data science, machine learning for over 11. I do data strategy and AI strategy because, well, they wouldn't let me do any cool projects until I figured out how to get them paid and make people money. So that's now my majority specialty, figuring out how to make money with these models. What I've been thinking about is what comes after this, because these, this is just the beginning. And we've got probably a few other evolutions coming afterwards, things like robotics are going to come to the front too. So that's what I've been thinking about. What's next? Hello, I'm Georg Krapetian. I'm co-founder and CTO at Zero Systems. I'm leading the both product strategy and the technological strategy. And what we do in Zero, we develop compilers for knowledge workers, which are augmenting them in very like you know uh, high value sophisticated tasks and actually <clears throat> what we do what we think the future will be in the intersection of automation of sophisticated workflows foundation models and we are super excited to see how the businesses are being transformed with this technology hey everyone very excited to be here my background is also in machine learning and a lot in like previous generation of machine learning as as diego said so i've been working in ml since yeah i think eight or nine years everything from ml research in um you know classical ai decision making under uncertainty deep learning also worked in uh, autonomous systems and self-driving doing machine learning and deep learning for uh, a few years and then most recently the founding engineer at an ml startup also doing the machine learning infrastructure applied ml I'm top of mind for me, and I guess also the reason that I'm here um, uh, talking on this panel is that I'm the creator of an open source uh, library called Guardrails, which, as you would expect, adds guardrails to the output of large language models and makes them a little bit more reliable and safe. Excited to be here. So, so let's just start, let's high level, like, how should we think about uh, the difference in some of these data privacy concerns that exist today between how we were building models maybe a couple of years ago and now using some of these kind of foundational model APIs? Like, how do we frame this? I think it's the biggest piece that's missing from the conversation is that we're not thinking about the patterns they can uncover. It used to be we could find fairly simplistic patterns. And the more complex machine learning and then eventually deep learning models got, the more complex the patterns that could be discovered. And so when we think about data privacy, data security, with respect to these types of models, it's no longer the data itself. It is the patterns within the data that can be uncovered and create vulnerabilities for anyone that has a significant amount of data out in public. There's a, a study that was done by Cole Short at Pepperdine, where they realized they could, through some creative prompting, get these models to give a, basically craft a VC pitch in the style of different VCs. And it was, it was convincing. So there are patterns that are built into the data sets that we throw out there all the time on social media, and they allow for more than just our data to be learned. There are deeper patterns now, and I think we need to start thinking about the implications. So, Sahil, how do we think about, to kind of continue on that, I'll, I'll ask you, like, you know, you're, you're working on information retrieval uh, and at a large scale. Like, how do you, how are you thinking about, like, the framing around these kind of, like, these patterns? Like, when do you use, when do you think you can use these 
open generic AP, well, open, generic APIs versus need to bring in models in house? Like, how do you frame that? That's a, an interesting point around some of these patterns and some vulnerabilities there. I think there's probably in my head kind of two ways in which we approach thinking about some of these issues. So on one hand, um, a lot of these models hallucinate, so they'll make up content. I think we're all aware of that. So in some ways, you know, there's obviously a lot of technical work to be done on reducing hallucination, better grounding essentially a lot of these models. So that's one area. But then on the other side, just because something is hallucinating doesn't mean that it's not a useful tool for people. So I think it also is somewhat of a product question. So how do we make sure that people have the right expectations when they're using a product that involves a large language model? They can get the most out of it. So I think when we're thinking a lot about this type of stuff, those are the two angles in which I think a lot about it is it's not only a technical question, but also a product question around what are the right expectations that you know we present to people using these tools and how do we make sure that they're not going to be misled and they know how to responsibly use it. You bring up a great, great point in terms of like how to use it. And so I'm, I'm going to move to you, Shreya, maybe for the audience kind of frame some of the challenges around hallucinations and kind of like how you need to think about it. And then obviously, you know, tell us a little bit about your work in terms of what's your hypothesis here? Like, you know, you obviously built this like fairly popular open source project that's having a lot of adoption. So very curious to hear from you, how you frame it in, in this context. Yeah, I think hallucination is a very interesting problem. Like when people think about hallucination, it's actually, you know, like a combination of problems that all kind of get grouped under this umbrella term of hallucination. Uh, I think like some of those problems are basically falsehoods, et cetera, or even like you have multiple conflicting sources and you aren't able to trust like which one is the golden source that you should kind of base your answer on. So it's a bunch of like kind of complex problems going on here. Um, I think like grounding, honestly, um, is the way to go, is the way to kind of solve all of these, solve, you know, very domain specific hallucination problems. So I do think that training better models, training bigger models, you know, that are kind of like primed to, you know, be less susceptible to this is like one way to go about this. But at the end of the day, you know, as, as all of us have worked with ML, we kind of know that it's really hard to get that level of certainty with any machine learning model. And so being able to take something that is so powerful and, you know, then add constraints on top of that, that make it work really well for your specific use case, I think is more, just more, more tractable essentially as a problem to solve rather than just make hallucination go away as a blanket thing for LLMs. Um, and so one of those things, I, I, I believe people have touched on this before as well, but like is the way to go is you can essentially connect what you believe are like good data sources or good kind of like fact checking, you know, either agents or tools or, or even just like um, embeddings of good data sources with your LLM outputs. And then any kind of like LLM outputs that are generated would get, you know, validated against those like ground truth. So that's kind of like the guardrails way to do it, which is that you use your large language model to generate something that you know functions and then on top of that for your domain you think about like what are my constraints and then impose them you know using like external sources or, or, or external data connections got it so give or i i'm going to move over to give or here on this one so you work in a very applicable space right you're building for information workers inside enterprises kind of like these assistant like accuracy matters trust matters security and privacy matters what are some of the principles that you're thinking about today as you develop the product obviously don't reveal anything proprietary or, uh, you know, a trade secret, but I'm very curious, like how you're thinking about it. Cause it has to be relevant. I mean, you're trying to get the trust of these enterprises to not only connect their data, but also like use your system inside their workflows. Walk us through that. Absolutely. Currently the enterprises already see and believe in the power of the generative uh, AI, the power of the large language models. 
So it is like very close to them, like they can play with that the chat GPT for all for their like you know personal use cases. But when it comes to the enterprise use cases, and we are working with for large enterprises such as Fortune 500 companies, the largest law firms in the world. So their data is very confidential and it's actually their client's data. And they have contractual obligations about how they're going to govern that data. And of course, now there's like, you know, there's a huge, like, you know, chasm between the opportunities and the reality. And what we are doing, we strongly suggest not to use the APIs like ChatGPT for the confidential data. And for those cases, just bring AI inside the organizations. Because nowadays there are already a lot of great models for several billion parameters. You can bring inside the security perimeter of the enterprise, fine tune on, on their domain specific data, just give a product, iterate on the human feedback and reach the level of the quality when the users will trust your system. So, uh, Diego, you're, you're absolutely right. The trust for enterprise systems is absolutely must. In case they will lose the confidence in, in your product, you'll just ignore that. Totally. Absolutely. And so moving forward on kind of like the trust, I think we have to frame, one of the things I'm always kind of curious about, I've been thinking about, like, there seems to be this people applying like the use cases to a one size fits all like framework. And, and it's problematic, right? Because there's times that like, you shouldn't care, right? Go use an API, whatever's faster, cheaper, whatever gets you there. And there's other times that you should spend the time to bring it all, you know, to your point, bring all the AI into the enterprise. But that has a cost, right? It's it, it can be expensive. You need to have knowledge and stuff like that. And so being able to do the back and forth based on like how you're thinking about security and privacy and not applying everything with a, you know, a one size fits all, I think is really important. I want to kind of push a little bit on the, um, you know, what have you seen in the industry in terms of people? Like, let's talk about that framing, right? Like how to think about the use cases, how to frame, how to, you know, if I'm listening to this talk right now and I'm trying to bring some of these use cases into my organization, like how should I frame it, right? In terms of thinking about it, how should I break down the problem? Should I go in route A? Should I go in route B? Like who can help me guide the kind of like questions that I should be asking myself in terms of like where to run this and how to run it? Any of you can p jump in. <laughs> yeah, so one thing like, you know, when you are currently thinking about the use cases, at first you need to understand that currently you need to put every single truth that you had in the future, like under the question, because you had some understanding, like what is solvable, what is not solvable, right? Now everything changed. You need to come to your business and understand which are like, you know, the major KPIs that will contribute to the, like, you know, growth of the, your business. Well, where are your, you know, there your obstacles, you know, where the processes are sophisticated, you are spending a lot of like money with, uh, uh, you know, less input and understand if you can automate that and bring in the people who understand that and they say, oh, you know, with new technology, it, it is possible. Vin, you work on data strategy a lot now. If I came to you today and I, need, I said I needed some advice on how to think about this, can you frame it for me? Yeah, definitely. What I tell companies is, I tell them this is kind of an arc. There's a whole bunch of use cases that you could have, but they haven't been proven yet. And if you're not meta, don't be first because you don't have the capabilities, you don't have the background, you don't really have the domain expertise in this area to be the pioneer for a particular use case. Wait until someone else proves it out and then enter in. But that doesn't mean you have to wait till your competitors get into the market. 
you can look at each use case as a category. You look at the ability to service customers and there's so much that you can do there. But you also at the same time have to be protecting your customers, which is not something most companies are thinking about. What happens when their customers submit a query across your website? Where does that go? How is it stored? What are the privacy implications that you're not thinking about? And that's why I say a lot of times you don't want to be the first company to do this because you don't have that in-house capability to really, at an expert level, think about these things. But at the same time, what you should be doing is some really targeted opportunity discovery, thinking about different categories of capabilities and problems that you've seen solved in other industries, and then asking yourself, how could I apply that problem solution and fit it into something that I have in my current business? Internal use cases are always great for proof of concepts because you're banging on it inside and the risks are significantly lower than churning around. And you see companies like Google did this. Microsoft did this. They consumed it internally and then they turned around and let companies externally play with it. And so a lot of these paradigms are what I'm talking to clients about now. But it's really important to be thinking through use cases and connecting to value propositions, not, well, it sounds cool, so let's do it. No, no, start with the ROI. If there's not a significant ROI, you know, if there's not a big dollar value on the other side of this, why distract yourself from your core strategy and your current competitive advantages? You have to adopt this at some point, so you should be forward-looking and prescriptive, but at the same time, it's all about the returns. If there's no significant use case that fits, that will deliver cash, don't do it. I was gonna ask Sahil about his, so you know, you work in search, you work in the future of search, right? And retrieval and personalization. And I'm kind of curious, like how you think about, you know, if one argues not only company, but our personal data is kind of like the most valuable thing we have, right? But we obviously want to contribute that data to search experiences that are great for us. How do we think about like, you know, what's the future look like? Can you guide us through that? Like uh, in terms of like how you're maybe, how you're thinking about it at you or maybe how you're just thinking about it personally. We can detach those two things if you want. But I'm very curious what the future of personalized search looks for look, looks look, looks like. Honestly, I think it looks super exciting. <laughs> that, um... Yeah, I think the future of search is probably more exciting now than I think it's been in you know, the last last couple of years, last five years maybe. And I think there's a, a number of reasons why. I think a lot of it is obviously the recent advances in you know, natural language processing, et cetera. Um, I think when it comes to personalized search, um, I think it comes down to how, like I guess when, when we think about, if we're thinking a little bit more into the future, what can we do to really allow you to control your search experience? So I think that's something that will have a lot more ability to control. I think a lot of times now when we're interacting with some of these models, for example, just think of the concept of a system message. So when you're using, you know, one of these models, there's this idea where you can specify a system message and it will basically dictate how the model is able to adapt to that. So that's that that in itself is a, a degree of personalization of AI that we have not been able to do in the past. Um, so I think ideas like that basically will allow us to really personalize the results that we get from search in the future, if we apply that more broadly. 
And then also in, the, in terms of bringing your own data, I think there's going to be a lot of, we have a lot of ideas at least where we're thinking about you know, building an open platform where other people can contribute their data and essentially what we call apps into search and we'll incorporate that into our chat slash results. So I think there's you know a combination of open community efforts that can make you more personalized um, as well as personalization enabled by technology itself. Cool. So we're going to go do, uh, we're going to kind of wrap this up, even though I could probably talk about this all day. So I'm going to do one quick, uh, you know, rotation through everybody. And I'm going to ask you to either recommend a tool. It's totally fine to recommend the tool that you're working on a, uh, you know, recommend a resource or kind of give a thought to the audience to go chase in terms of like, how to be thinking about data privacy and security and trust in these AI systems. Sahil, I'll start with you. Yeah, I guess maybe I would start, I guess one thought would be um, maybe just, you know, what you currently find um, these tools to be very useful to you right now, where, you know, I think sometimes it's easy to think of tools as useful in abstract or maybe on a couple examples, but what are some ways in which you've been using some of these technologies and it's been consistently useful for you? Um, and then, you know, from there, I think one can imagine what the future use cases will be. Awesome. Yeah, it's a great question. So since we have like a very uh, big audience here and I believe uh, that not everyone started to like, you know, work and experiment with uh, generative AI and bring the applications via link chain. So I strongly suggest to do that because you'll be very impressed how fast you can have a great result. And then you already will have a good use case. You can already like, you know, double down on the accuracy and, and like user experience. Right. Vin? Uh, I would start looking at AutoGPT. The whole concept of self-healing, self-correcting, those are some really fascinating use cases. There's danger, but a lot of potential in that direction. So I would say, look at those tools. If there's anything that comes out of this that I think becomes an exceptionally powerful construct going forward, that's the one to keep an eye on from a forward-looking perspective. Got it. And Shreya, and I, I, I expect what you're gonna, what, what tool you're gonna expect to push here. So do it. Uh, totally happy <laughs> with that. <laughs> but explain yeah, why. I, yeah, yeah, happy to do that. So I can, uh, I think I'm going to basically talk about guardrails, and I'm going to talk about it more in the context of this idea that I want the audience to think about and like take home inspiration and like why guardrails kind of fits inside that. Um, so I think essentially. Um, we like these tools are these uh, these models are really performant right and we see like really interesting use cases and everything but like are they ready to be deployed into production where they can you know like work reliably work like 100% of the time and not you know return like awful messages to your potential users etc right and so i think the idea i kind of want to share is that this isn't going to be the this isn't sufficient enough to like actually put a lot of you know the uh, applications that we're building into production and the actual solution would be a hybrid of more traditional machine learning uh, more traditional like rule-based and heuristic-based methods in addition to like large language models. And I think like that kind of gives us both the performance as well as the kind of reliability safety guarantees we care about. And I think that's a very powerful construct of like ensembling those two kinds of methods together. And so in that context, I think like guardrails is a good tool uh, that I want to push. Obviously I'm biased, but I think it's a great tool that, you know, allows you to kind of like get a lot of those, a lot of those guarantees straight out of the box. Yeah. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks all of you for uh, a great panel. I believe we're uh, we're we're here wrapping up. Vin, uh, Gavorg, uh, Sahil, and Shreya, thank you so much for taking the time. They will all be in the yes, Slack well. channel for the conference. We'll also share the links about what we uh, you know what was talked about today. Uh, Demetrius, back to you. Thank you.
All right. Wow. That was special. So I knew it was going to be good. I'm not going to lie. You get this many hard hitters in one place on one virtual room. And what do you expect? This podcast is over, but the good news is if you enjoyed it, we have another large language model in production conference coming up soon on June 15th and 16th. As we mentioned before, we're going to be doing it all over again. We are also pairing that with some in-person events, live events that are happening around the globe. So check out the calendar if you're in SF, if you're in Berlin, New York, even Amsterdam. We've got all kinds of fun stuff happening in conjunction with the next virtual large language model in production conference that's happening on June 15th and 16th. Two days of this. It's going to be incredible. Sign up now with the link in the description. It's completely free. I'll see you all there. And I am already taking song requests for the breaks.